So like James said, my name is Kendall, and uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my wife. Um, I, I was not a really great boyfriend, just to let the secret out. And through all of her sacrifice and all of her love, she really took on more like a kid. So when we celebrate Mother's Day, for me, it, it means a lot because she was sacrificial to me, just like a mother would be. She loved me. She cared for me, even when I was in a messed up place. So um, I just want to say thank you, Shannon, uh, for what you do for me, for what you do for our kids, for all of it. Also, um, before we get started, it just occurred to me that Josh, uh, one of our own, is on the road right now, uh, heading down to Florida. So when you think about him today, pray for him, pray for their safety um, as they go to do some really incredible things for God. So with that, let's get started. Everybody put on your seatbelt because it's going to be a pretty wild ride. <laughs> that I can guarantee you. So we've been in Hebrews for a while now. We've been in 12 chapters, and this is the end of a logical section of Hebrews that has been building and building and climaxing. And actually today, we're at the climax of the entire first 12 chapters of Hebrews. So what a responsibility we have today. Now, Hebrews was written to a people who were being persecuted and who were being shaken by life. And I think we all can agree that this life is a pretty shaky place. If we put our hope in this life, it's going to let us down. But the author of Hebrews cared so much about his congregation, his little church, that he decided to write them in their persecutions, in the times that they were struggling, to encourage them. And he spent 12, he spent 12 chapters building his argument until right now, this is what he has wanted to say the entire time. And if he wanted to say this to his church, then our church should pay really close attention because I think what God has to say to us is very important today. Now, last week we talked about the guy who runs the race or the gal who runs the race. And you throw off every single weight that's holding you down and you do what? You fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has already ran the race. He's already came to this earth and he's already done what we could not do. He's, he's paved the way. In the army there's this term called a pathfinder. It's somebody who goes before the rest of the group and paves the way. And what Jesus has done is that through his life, death, burial, resurrection, he's paved the way for us to go back into the loving arms of God. So we can trust him. He's the only one qualified to lead us. He's the only one, really, that can take us back to God. Now, I want to acknowledge that every person here today is running after something. Every person here is chasing after something whether it's the happy life, contentment, peace, joy, significance. But what I want us to realize is that all of those are shaky things. And that Jesus is the only one who came into human history and actually did and accomplished what all of us are searching for. Now, like I said, this is the logical conclusion of Hebrews, the first 12 chapters, and we're going to move into a new section next week. But where we're heading today, what the author of Hebrews wants to tell us more than anything else is there's really two ways to live this life. There's to live this life in a shaky way, to live the shakable life, and then there's the unshakable life, which all of us would agree that we want. And what I found fascinating about this is that Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, and Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 both begin with the exact same word. One's a negative, one's a positive. You have not come to this mountain in verse 18. In verse 22, you have come. And I think that we're meant to compare and contrast these two different images. So if you will, turn with me to Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. 
I'm going to get ambitious, and I'm going to try to finish the whole chapter, but if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't. Here's God's word. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did in Mount Sinai. This sounds like a good vacation place, right? For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command so that Moses, the leader, himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and I'm trembling. Now pay attention. These words trembling and shaking are going to be very important today. Now, here's the shift. No, you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering, you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect, and you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, the one who sprinkled blood which speaks forgiveness instead of crying out in vengeance like the blood of Abel. So let's get right into it. This section in verses 18 through 21, we're going to talk about the shakable life, the life that shakes, all right? Now, like I said, in Greek, this word leads it off, and it means to come, it means to approach, it means to draw near to. And one of the most fascinating things about this word is that 80 times in Scripture, this word shows up, its root words and its alternate words show up hundreds of times, and it almost always means a shift in geographical location. Wherever James is, if I see James after service and I say, man, I'm coming to your house after we get done here today, it requires me moving. I can't stay where I'm at. I have to actually shift my location and move to where James is at or else I can't go. Now, we get that. That's logical. But in the book of Hebrews, he never, ever, ever uses the word this way. He uses a nuanced version of it. He uses a form of it that doesn't talk about our physical location, but it talks about our mental location, our thought processes. Where have we directed our gaze, our stare, our mind, our focus? Now, I think it's pretty clear that Moses is not saying, hey, guys, just to let you know in a little bit of secret, Mount Sinai is not really a great vacation spot. It's fiery, it's shaky, trumpet blast. Dude, I'm telling you, do not go there on your vacation. Go to Mount Zion. It's a whole lot better. See, we know he's not saying that. What he's saying is, is that there is an altogether different way of thinking. There's a new way of thinking that doesn't have to be shaky, that doesn't have to be unstable, that doesn't have to be a part of this world's system, and we can have it. But before he does that, he wants us to think about the old way, the shaky way. Now, one thing that we have to realize too is that every single person on earth has this type of approaching, this type of drawing nearness, and it's a way that we think. It's the way that we synthesize every single thing that we know about the world and package it into something meaningful, and it's called a worldview. It's the way that we view the world. Everyone has it. It's not just a Christian, but I'm going to start with that. In Hebrews 4.16, he uses the same word. Now, let's see what he says. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and grace. Now, what he's not saying is for us today to leave this place and go look in all over Massachusetts for a throne. He's not saying for us to try to find an actual physical throne, run up to it and throw ourselves upon it and say, God, now you can give me grace. We get that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that 
our thoughts, our mind, the way that we understand things actually will end up directing our feet. So if you're a Christian, you're probably here today because you have some thoughts about God and those thoughts have led you to this place and they've directed your feet on where to go. Now, the throne room is a metaphor for relationship with God. So that as far back as the Garden of Eden, we see God bringing his throne down into the presence of the people. So he's saying that I am going to dwell with my people. And even as far forward as Revelation, God brings his throne room back down into a new garden city. It's called the New Jerusalem. And again, God is going to dwell with his people. So the question for us today should not be, does this God want to dwell with us? Does this God want to be in relationship with us? Because he's proven that. He's proven that in the very beginning. He's proven that in the very end. And literally, we are living in this time between two cities, the Garden of Eden, the New Jerusalem. And the question is not if, the question is how for us today. How can we orient our lives? How can we approach him? How can our fundamental beliefs actually shape the direction of our feet? Now, this is not just a Christian thing, like I've said. This is every single person who has a view of the world, every single person who orders their existence and synthesizes their facts about the world and has a thought. No one's exempt. It's a wrong way of thinking to lump every single person in the world into two camps, those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God. That's a wrong way of thinking. See, every single person believes Every single person has faith. Every single person is placing their hope, their trust, and their significance in something. It's wrong to dump us off into two categories, those who believe in God and those who don't. We all have beliefs, and that's going to become important. Now, what I find interesting is that the default mode of the human heart, even my heart, my heart all the time defaults and tries to pull me back to this one premise, that I'm not perfect, that I don't have it quite all together, but I'm basically a pretty good guy. I always try to operate under that. I always try to justify myself. And we all do it. Imagine if you're young, if you're earlier than your 20s, you find significance and meaning from your friends, from your relationships, even from your school, and you pour yourself deeply into those things because those are what make you significant. And if you're in your 30s and your 40s, you probably realize that people are going to let you down, that they're a terrible idol. So then you pour yourself into a career because that's what's going to make you special. That's what's going to make you significant. But... After you've been passed up on several promotions, you realize maybe it's not my career. So you get into your 50s, and you've done many wonderful things in this world. You've donated money. You've done all kinds of philanthropic things. And you look back over your life in your 60s and your 70s, and you say, I'm a pretty good guy. Look at all that I've done in comparison to Joe, in comparison to Jane. I'm not that bad. But that's wrong. That's a sham. That's a way of thinking that tries to justify ourselves because even based on our own worldview, we are not really that good. Let me explain. Let's take the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, there's not been a single day where I have worked harder at trying to love people than I've hoped that they've tried to love me. There's not a single day where I've tried to understand other people's emotions and other people's feelings more than I've wanted them to understand me. There's not been a day. I've not even come close. And if you have amazing, great job, let's go to another example, because this one's relevant in Boston. Imagine that I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off. I hate that. And immediately I say, well, look at that guy. He's impatient, he's not prepared, he's late, and now he's taking it out on me. I use my worldview to judge this man, but yet, 
when I'm in a hurry, I cut somebody off, I throw up my hand, oh yeah, I'm not that bad. But do we realize how inconsistent that is? That by the same moral standard, by the same compass, I judge one man's heart and say that he is bad and then justify myself. See, I'm not consistent. I'm not consistent even within the worldview of this world, much less the worldview of God. Now, no matter what ethic you hold, no matter what philosophy you hold or moral compass that you adhere to, you're not consistent either. See, that's the sham that keeps trying to hold you in, and this is what we're going to talk about. This is what the Israelites experienced poignantly when they approached the mountain of God. Now, notice the scene. God descends down upon this mountain, and it starts shaking and quaking because of his glory. Now, if the Israelites actually believed that they were pretty good people, then what do you think would have happened? They would have been celebrating. This is the God who delivered us. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. It would have been a joyful event, but they hit the deck shattered. Because when they came into an encounter with God, the spotlight was on them, and they were naked and ashamed, and they knew exactly who they were. They couldn't feel safe. They couldn't feel secure. They were utterly shaken. Now, it's not just here. In Exodus, it's all over the Bible. When God comes into an encounter with a human being, it's scary. And it's meant to show us something. Now, a human example, because I love Duke basketball. Absolutely love Duke basketball. Probably too much. So there was this guy a couple years ago, the number one player coming out of the state of Texas, which is a pretty big state, lots of people. And when he got, or sorry, everywhere that he went, he was basically the best player that was there. There was not a room he entered in high school where anyone else was better than him. And he started saying that basketball is not just something that I do, basketball is something that I am. So that when Duke recruited him, because we only recruit the best players, and win championships and all that stuff. <laughs> he wasn't the best anymore. He was in a room where people who were better than him, and when he sat on the bench, it crushed him because who he thought he was, the worldview that he was holding, that I am basically a good person, I'm basically significant because of my performance, and when it didn't match up with reality, it crushed him. He actually was kicked off the team last year because he couldn't adapt to the system. He couldn't buy into the fact that maybe he wasn't the greatest. But it's not just him, right? If there's someone that's smarter than you, how does that make you feel? If you're used to being the smartest person in the room, if there's someone who's better than you, how does that make you feel? And we see here that Israel, when they approached the mountain of God, they couldn't hide any longer. They approached a God who was holier, pure, more righteous, and everything else, and not just a little bit of a degree, in infinite proportions. And it crushed them. Again, I said, this is not just an exodus. Job, let's give you Job for an example. Job, after an entire life, or an entire period of suffering, he sees God in a whirlwind. And what do you think Job says? Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. That's powerful. The language there is striking that he could actually despise himself after he had an encounter with God. Let's keep going. Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in this amazing vision that he sees, the very first words that come out of his mouth is, Woe is me, I am ruined. 
I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have now seen the king. Now, if you can't get down with the Old Testament, that's okay. I got a New Testament example. Let's look at Peter. Now, I love Peter because Peter talks before he thinks, and he does a lot of the same things I do. I'm nowhere near as good as Peter, but let's pick on Peter for a second. When Peter was fishing and he saw his nets filled to capacity, that was the one thing that tipped him over the edge, and he saw just how amazing and how incredible Jesus was. And what do you think he said, dear Lord? Thank you for filling my nets. That's not what he said. He said, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Why? I wrote it down like this. Because in the presence of God, finally, we are faced with the unmistakable reality that we are really not that good. Finally, we are allowed to see how selfish we really are, how unloving we have been, how callous we have become. And it's in the presence of God that the truth about who we really are becomes absolutely inescapable. Now, you may be saying, Kendall, I've never had a literal encounter with God, and by the way you're describing it, thank goodness. I mean, not to play a pun here, but thank God. Because had I, I wouldn't be here. But I think all of us can get down with the fact, all of us understands that if you live in this world long enough, it'll shake you down. It'll tear you to pieces. Like I said, if you build your life on being the smartest, the brightest, if you build your, your wealth, if your wealth is what makes you successful, then when the stock market crashes, it's not just your bank account that's shattered, it's you. Because you've bought into the lie that you can gain significance from something other than God. If it's beauty, beauty is a terrible idol. You may be beautiful today, but think about you, you're going to age. It's not something you can put your hope and trust in because years come, wrinkles happen, and all kinds of things. And if you look at these people in Hollywood, the way that they chase after this idol and spend millions of dollars trying to protect an image because their, their identity is tied up into this. My hope for all of us today is that we would see just how shaky that this is. That putting our hope and trust in anything other than God is a shaky way to live. It's a terrible way to live. And it will shake you down. But the author of Hebrews is incredible in the fact that he shifts our focus and uses the exact same word to do it. It's rhetorical brilliance. You have not come to this mountain, but yet you have come to this one. Now, first thing I want to say about this is that the transition is striking. See, we are meant to compare an earthly mountain that's shaking, quaking, it's on fire, and it's causing all of these people scared and afraid for their lives. But yet we also look forward to a new mountain, Mount Zion, that doesn't even shake. All the seismic meters that you could possibly put on this mountain would not even detect a tremble. Why? Because the peace of God is on it. And that's what we're moving towards in redemptive history. It doesn't just compare a mountain, though. It compares a city. Like I said before, you've got the New Jerusalem, and you've got the, or you've got the, the old Eden, you've got the New Jerusalem. See, every single city after the fall has built itself on maximizing power, maximizing wealth, and the pursuit of personal happiness. But yet in this city, in the New Jerusalem, we don't see any of that. We don't see people climbing over top of one another, another to get ahead. We see justice. We don't see people craving for more and more power we see perfect peace because where there's perfect peace we don't have to crave for power anymore but if you know me there's something even better about this word 
something even better than all of this talk about physical location and all that stuff like that. See, what the author of Hebrews does not say is that you will come. What he does not say is that you're going to come. He says you already have. He says you already have come into this relationship so that you might not be experiencing experience it in full because we are still waiting for Jesus to return, but you've come into it so that now it's possible for you to begin living it out now. Now, that's interesting, right? But here's the problem. I've spent the majority of this message telling you you can't do it. I've spent the majority of this message telling you that if you come into the presence of God, you will be struck down. So how does that coincide with what I'm trying to tell you right now? How does the author of Hebrews have a, have a right to say you've already come into this because we know intrinsically that if we approach God and he were to shake us, there'd be nothing left. So how do these two thoughts coincide? Let's look at it. It says that we have already come into it, but it doesn't just stop there. I love what the author of Hebrews does because he takes it to the nth degree, which I always love. He goes even further, and he doesn't just say that you come into a city. He said that you've come into a city joyfully. Now, behind this word, behind this Greek word, it's a very, very, very unusual word. It's never in the New Testament in any other place but here, and it means a wild party. It means revelry. It means ecstatic joy. So here we have a picture. I want you to hold it in your head of Israel cowering at the mountain of God, afraid for their life. And here we have already come into a reality that one day we will be singing, unable to stop. One group of people says, please, God, quit speaking to us. And we say, please, never stop speaking to us. But how is that? Again, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us a solution to this problem. He amplifies it. And he does it again. He doesn't just say that we're going to a city. He doesn't just say that we're going to a city rejoicing. He says that you have become firstborn children of God. You see, in the ancient world, the firstborn was the one who got the inheritance, the majority of it. Now, they could be a completely degenerate son. They could lay around and watch Netflix in the ancient Israel times all day long. I don't even know what show they would watch, The Walking Camel. <laughs> that would be crazy. So they could literally do nothing. They could spend their, their whole life not living up to what the father said, but because they were the firstborn, they would get the inheritance. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that this inheritance is not based on what you and I can do. It's not based on our effort. It's not based on the things that we can donate to charity. It's not based on any of that. It's literally because we have been made legally a firstborn son of God. It's a legal reality that happens irrespective of anything we have done. But again, he hasn't told us how. He's taking it another step further, and yet he does it again. For the fourth time, he does this. He doesn't just say that we're going into a city, we're going into a city rejoicing. He doesn't just say you've been made firstborn children of God, which is incredible enough. He says that your names have been written in heaven. Again, he uses a word that doesn't mean a future tense. It doesn't mean a present tense. It means before the foundations of the world that your name was written in heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's not like the apostle Peter, to pick on him again, is up in heaven just waiting. Kendall, if you just do one more thing, man, I'd write your name down. It's already there. See, I'm learning as a dad about uh, middle school dynamics. I guess I'm too old to remember how it actually happened. 
and apparently you can know somebody really, really well, and when the invitations get sent out to the party, your name's not on it. And you start to question yourself, and you start to sh be shaken, and you start to be utterly confused, and you ask yourself, I thought I knew this person. And me, being a blunt father, which I need to work on, I end up saying, well, maybe you didn't know him that well, which is not very helpful. But we do this as adults, don't we? The only people we invite into our home are the people we care about, the people who get into our living room. It's exclusive. I don't invite everybody into my living room. But even more than that, if somebody comes to my house, they don't see my bedroom. You know why? Because I'm going to be honest with you guys. When somebody's coming to my house, I'm throwing stuff in my bedroom. I'm getting rid of it. It looks amazing in the living room. Don't go in my bedroom. That's an exclusive relationship that you guys don't get. I'm sorry. But even more than that, there's only a very few people on this earth that I'll let live with me. Now, situations might change that. I might actually need to let somebody in my door like that. But you get my point. I'm narrowing the focus into intimate relationships that go even deeper and deeper and deeper so that the most deep, the most intimate relationship I have on this earth is the one who shares the bed with me. Now, if you strip all of the sexual connotations out of it and you just get to the fact that I can be who I really am in front of this woman unashamed, then you've got an idea of what heaven looks like. That God has got this in mind for you and that this is the relationship that he's going for with you, this ultimate intimate relationship, because he is a God who's been doing this for all eternity. He's a God who's been in intimate, loving, sacrificial relationship within the members of the Trinity throughout eternity. And that's what he has for you. But now remember, not everybody gets in. And I'm pretty sure that I don't make the cut. So please tell me, author of Hebrews, how you're going to tie all this together because you've got me here that I've got all of this stuff and I've already walked into it, but yet you keep narrowing it down and, and increasing the hurdles so that I can't possibly accomplish it. So please tell me how you're going to do this. And I love what he says. The very next thing that he says, the way he wraps up the entire enterprise is God is a judge. Great. Thank you. I have only a billion sins that I'm walking with into the courtroom, and I'm standing before God, and he's not one of those judges that I can pay off. God is good. God is just. And if anybody is not going to let me off, it's him. So how is this helpful? This reminds me of this time when my daughter, I love my daughter. She's such a beautiful person. You should totally get to talk to her. Do you guys like jelly beans? The gourmet ones? Oh, yeah. Okay. Popcorn flavor popcorn flavor oh my goodness so my daughter she comes into my room and she says daddy you want a jelly bean she holds it up and as the light the light does its thing and I see those beautiful little yellow speckles and I say yes honey yes I would love that jelly bean she holds it out and as I go to grab it what are you doing I felt cheated I felt robbed and this is kind of how I want to feel here, that the author of Hebrews has been holding out all these wonderful things and then snatching them back and says, God is judge. How is he going to tie all this together? Go to with me to Matthew 27, 45 through 51. At noon, 
Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. About three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then Jesus shouted out again as he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. You see what's happening? See what's going on? This is all new. This is another Mount Sinai happening all over again. You see it? See, in the Old Testament, we have the people cowering before the mountain of God, afraid to go up to the top of it, afraid to meet with their God because they understand what the judgment is. But yet here is this Jesus who climbs up on his mountain called Calvary. Here is this Jesus who, when he died, darkness descended upon the land, just like it did in the Old Testament. Darkness came. And look what else happens. When he dies, the earth is shaken. That is significant. Because what it is actually telling us is that if we want to be in relationship with God, then someone else has to be shaken. It tells us that Jesus was shaken so that we don't have to be. Do we hear that? That Jesus was shaken so that we don't have to be. So that when God shook the earth, what he was literally doing was he was evaluating the life of Jesus. Only here is the one who is righteous. Only here is the one who can, I can have joy in. The only one here who can come into my city. The only one who can be called my firstborn son. See, all of the lines of evidence that the author of Hebrews was laying up for me was never meant for me to accomplish. I was never meant to be able to do any of that. It was given to me by the one who's already done it. This Jesus has already accomplished all of it so that now, and I love what John Calvin says, if we are in Christ, we enjoy the same privileges, the same favor, the same access to the Father as Christ does. See, all of this time that the author of Hebrews has been building this up, what he's actually been saying is that you've not come into the city, you've come into Christ. That's the unshakable life. That is what we can have hope in. I don't have a timer up here, but I'm going to go with it. Verse 25 and 29. See to it. This is the end. This is the conclusion. This is what he really wants to leave you with. And I pray that you listen very carefully to what I'm saying. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. This is not me, although I am speaking to you right now. Don't refuse him because he is the one who was speaking to the people in Israel. And if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised not just the earth, but I'll also shake the heavens. What he's saying is, and what he's been saying this entire time is that this world is a very shaky place. And that if you build your life upon this world, it's going to be like the sand that falls down between the cracks in the sieve. See, me and my son at one point went to this place called uh, Hidnight. It was a mine. And we paid $5 and we got the bag because it's legitimate, right? They give us a bag for $5 and we can expect to get some gems. So we pour it in there and we got nothing but a few pebbles. I was so irritated. So then, as a good dad, I spent like $25 on the next bag and I got a few other things. Now, what I'm trying to say to you is, is that if we walk up to God, we instinctively know that we've got the $1 bag, the 50-cent bag. We don't have anything to give him. 
But if you're a Christian today, the reality is that you are in Christ. I don't have to give you permission to live an unshakable life. I don't have to give you permission to go out into the world and be like Jesus because you're already in him. And it is now our responsibility as a church to go out into Woburn, Winchester, and all the other towns that we live in and live out his kingdom so that other people can see how wonderful it is. And if you're not a Christian here today, then I pray you would listen. I pray that you would hear. I pray that you would hear the word that's spoken to you because if you're being shaken right now, it's a reason. Because God's trying to find out if there's anything deep inside of you, if there's any eternity down inside of you, and if there is not Christ, then you, sadly, you don't have it.